0: to your own Bible. You'll find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 788 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, and he woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap the cloak around you and follow me. And he went out, and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, He thought it was seeing a vision. And when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and they went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in and she reported Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, You're out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It's just an angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then they departed, and they went to another place. This is the word of God.
1: Remember, whenever the wind blows, the Bible word for wind is spirit. So think of the spirit when you feel the wind, so... I don't know if you've heard about this phenomenon or not, but there's a brand new kind of church that's been growing really fast around the world. It's different than any other church you've ever heard of. It's got a very simple name, Sunday Assembly, Sunday Assembly. The first Sunday Assembly started in the United Kingdom in January, just over a year ago, January 2013. And as of today, after only about a year and a half of starting, there are more than 70 Sunday Assemblies around the world. In many ways, Sunday Assembly is a lot like a regular church. It has contemporary, upbeat music. It features a special talk with positive values for life. And outside of Sunday Assembly, they encourage people to gather together in small groups, which they call Smoops. And their motto is this, live better, help often, wonder more. Live better, help often, wonder more. Their stated mission is this, to try to help everyone find and fulfill their potential. In many ways, like I said, Sunday Assembly is a lot like a regular church, except for one glaring exception. Sunday Assembly is an atheist church. Sunday Assembly is what they prefer to be called a godless church. Now, who would want to have church without God? Well, apparently a lot of people do. (laughs) I mean, it's a lot easier to have church without God. You can get together, have fun, have a good talk, sing some songs, right? Enjoy your life? Yeah, it started a a while ago when two uh, British people were chatting about church. One of them had grown up in the church and loved it, the sense of family, the music, the service of the community, until she realized that she'd no longer believed in God. So why couldn't you have church, they thought, without God, to keep all the good stuff and take out that other stuff? So they did, and a lot of people seemed to really like that idea. Now, there are a lot of questions we might ask about a church like this, uh, a godless church. What motivates it? Why are people attracted to it? But there's a different question that has been kind of troubling me since I first learned about these assemblies a few months ago. What I wonder about is this. Is there any substantial difference between what happens at a godless Sunday assembly when they meet on Sundays and many traditional regular churches, when they meet on Sundays? I mean, after all, we sing, we have a talk, we enjoy one another, we go home hoping to live life better. Is there anything substantially different? Is it possible, I've asked myself, that without knowing it, many typical churches could do just fine without God? Just take the principles and the ethics. Is that possible? If what we do is very similar to what these kinds of places do, what is it, we might ask, that makes the Christian church unique? Is it just the fact that we have a lot of God talk when we gather, or is there something more substantial that makes us unique? I mean, do we really believe that God is alive and well and that Jesus, His Son, is risen from the dead? Do we really? I mean, does our life show that we really believe that? Or are we sometimes having church and living our lives not like atheists, but simply as practical atheists, right? Yeah, And if we do believe in Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, what practical difference does it make in the way we live our lives and when, what happens when we gather on Sundays like this for worship? Is God here right now with us or not? Or are we just playing pretend when we gather for worship? Now, these are not comfortable questions to ask, but they're worth asking, right? You know, the Scriptures that we read... When we gather on Sundays, do we really believe they are breathed by the God of the universe? When we read, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, were we thinking about a true Lord in our own soul? Or were we just mouthing words? Or the songs that we sing, Are we just enjoying music, or are we expressing something significant to the God of the universe? The prayers that we pray, do we really believe God is on the other side of our conversation and eager and willing to answer? What is the difference between a godless Sunday assembly and a a Christian worship gathering? Now, you may think this is, well, of course there's a difference. Well, there is. (laughs) But I wonder and worry sometimes that often when we gather, not we necessarily, but we as Christians gather we're not doing a lot more than just sort of showing up, getting a talk, and going home, right? To help us with live our lives. Well, we're going to explore that question today. What is the real difference between just any gathering and a Christian worship gathering? We're going to explore that today, and we'll use the story that Susan just read for us as kind of our starting point. So if you're new among us, what you should know is that when we gather, we study books of the Bible. And so we've been studying the book of Acts as we've gathered for the last several months. The book of Acts... Is the story of how that little band of Jesus' followers grew from 120 people outside of Jerusalem to a worldwide movement extending all the way to Rome, the center of world power in the first century. We've now reached the 12th chapter, and we've already seen that not even the power of Herod can stop the spread of the gospel. But here we have this odd little story which Susan read for you. It's actually a little humorous and I think provocative. You heard her read it, and perhaps just to remind you what went on, it we found that Peter's life is in mortal danger. His friend James was already killed by the king. He was already killed. And now he's been put into jail, uh, and he's going to be uh, executed tomorrow by King Herod. Tomorrow. He went to sleep knowing his life was going to be ended tomorrow. As I said, king is, the king has already beheaded James, one of the twelve disciples. Now it looks like Peter, their leader, is going to be next. The church gathers all around this city in various homes, I'm sure, and they pray earnestly, earnestly for Peter's release. They were not able to prevent James's death, but perhaps their prayers can prevent Peter's death. Now in answer to the prayer, while Peter is sleeping in the night before he's going to be executed, an angel shows up, engineers Peter's escape, and, uh, and, 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 and leads him out into the, into, the, into the street. And now Peter decides that he's going to go to the prayer meeting to the home of John Mark's mother, uh, John Mark's mother, where there's a the prayer meeting. And when he arrives at the prayer meeting, did you hear it as she read it? He knocks at the door. A servant girl named Rhoda, go, they're praying for Peter on the inside. A Servant girl named Rhoda goes to the door and she opens it and looks through because, of course, they're fearful for the Jewish leaders. And they look through it and she hears that's Peter's voice. I hear Peter. Rather than opening the door, she gets all excited and she forgets. She goes and runs to the prayer And Guess what? Peter's outside. The people, full of faith as they are, what do they do? You guys, you're crazy. You saw a vision. No, it was him. I know it was him. They know maybe it's his angel. You know, often this has happened where people die. Sometimes people in other parts of the world can maybe see a quick vision of that person. People have reported that. You know, or that's what they assume. Maybe his angel showed up. He's dead. They just killed him, you know. No, it's really him. And, and the Bible says Peter kept on knocking. That's just, I think, it, beautiful. Kept on knocking. I mean, he's out there. He could be captured by a soldier. He's knocking. And then they come to the door and they describe, they, they find that he really is there. He quiets them down. He says, shh, quiet down. And he says, yes, it's me. Go tell James and the brothers. And the Bible says he went off somewhere to hide. Peter had been, now went into hiding. God had just worked a mighty miracle in direct answer to their prayer, but they don't even believe it when they see it. (laughs) They were praying, but not much believing. Now, it's not a fair comparison, but it seems to me that this situation is worryingly similar to how church often happens in America. We say prayers, but do we really expect God to answer them when we gather? We sing songs. But are really our hearts really in it or not? We we preachers preach sermons, but do we really expect people's lives to be changed and made for the better? You see, if we ever expect anyone to take our faith seriously in this world, we need to take it seriously ourselves. Or maybe we should just join the Sunday assembly movement, right? Sing some songs and sing anything we want. No, of course I'm just teasing. So let's take a closer look at this little story. And in it, see, we see three, we see three clues as to the essence of Christian belief. We, things we can pick out of this that kind of bleed through the surface of this story. Three fundamentals, if you will. First of all, Christians believe, number one, in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Christians believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's the first thing that you need to know. When we gather, we're not gathering simply to share advice and good ideas and good ethics. We're gathering to celebrate the resurrected Son of God, Jesus Christ. At, the fu- at its most fundamental level, Christianity is about something that has happened, something that occurred inside of Jerusalem, something that happened to Jesus of Nazareth and through Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Christianity at its heart is not merely ethical teaching. It's not just good advice for how to live your life. The Christian message is not good, good advice. It is good news, and news about something that has happened. Gospel means good news. And the good news is this, that G- though Jesus was killed on a cross, he was miraculously raised from the dead to a new life. Christianity is about good news about something that has happened and how we reverence that and how that changes our lives. It's not merely ethical teaching. A lot of religions have that. If that's the essence of Christianity, then, of course, all religions are virtually the same. You need good advice in a lot of places, including many religious groups. I don't dispute that at all. But Christianity is much more than that. It's not simply good advice. It's good news. Yeah. This is a first. It's all right. Are you okay? You guys okay? All right. We'll keep on going. Um, I want to make some lesson out of that falling speaker, but I can't think of anything offhand. It's not merely ethical teaching, nor is it merely a moral example, a good moral example. You know, it's not, Jesus was a good example, of course, but there are many other people, religious and otherwise, who are good moral examples. It's not just that. You know, In fact, I'm sure that most anybody in the whole world, including atheists who gather on a Sunday, would agree that Jesus was a, a good moral example and a good ethical teacher. But what you believe, if you're a Christian, is something deeper and more fundamental than that. The essence uh, of Christianity ultimately is that Jesus was raised from the dead. It answers this question, what really, and you can put this down, what really happened on Easter morning? What really happened on Easter morning? What Christians believe happened is that Jesus didn't just come back from death, but went all the way through death and emerged on the other side of death. He emerged into a new creation. We believe that He was literally bodily raised from the dead, not merely that He came back to life, but that He went through death and came out on the other side, emerging to a new eternal life with a remade, incorruptible body. Somehow, His body was transformed into a new resurrected body. It was this fact which gave rise to the New Testament church in the Bible. This is why the Christian movement did not die when its leader died every other movement. In fact, there were other so-called messiahs in Jerusalem, both in uh, some famous ones about 50 years before Jesus and about 50 years after Jesus, who had great leaders, so-called potential messiahs. But ultimately, those people were killed. And when they were killed, so too was the movement. Christianity didn't. Why? Because three days after he died, much to their surprise, not that they expected it at all, they saw him. There are many texts that teach this in the Bible, and we see it's fundamental to the story of Acts. Listen to a few texts. Acts chapter 1, verse 22. Beginning from the baptism of John when he was taken up from us, one of these must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's Peter talking to the group. Then Jesus is praying, uh, preaching to the people on, on Pentecost Sunday, Acts 2.32. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. The third chapter, he's preaching again, and he says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses. The fourth chapter, the priests were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In the same chapter, it says, and with great, verse 33, chapter 4, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony... Their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And in the fifth chapter, preaching again, God exalted Jesus at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance, and we are witnesses of this. It's all the way through the book of Acts. What gave the church its, its power was not just good advice, not just an emotional experience, but rather the reality of the resurrected Jesus, the Son of God. And so in the 10th chapter, I can give you many more, but listen to this one. Preaching again, Acts chapter 10, verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who... Listen to this, ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. A critical distinction, ate and drank. They're saying this was not merely a ghost, not merely an apparition, but a flesh and blood body. For some reason, a lot of us think that first century people were stupid and superstitious. They were no more stupid or superstitious than you and I are. They know dead people don't live again. They know what happens when people die. They would be as doubtful as a, of a resurrection as you would be. Something dramatic had to happen to them. And what happened was that they saw him. And whenever he showed up, he said, touch me. Put your hand in my sides. He said, have some fish. He said, he said uh, 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 has anybody here got anything to eat? <laughs> he said that when he showed up. Why? What's this about? They knew this was not just an apparition. They knew about visions and angels. That's what we see in this story right here. They heard about Peter showing up to Rhoda, and they said to Rhoda the same thing people would say about Christians today. About Peter, they said, oh, you just, his angel, you saw him. You thought you saw him was a vision. No, it was really him. You see, they had words like angel and vision. They used them. They didn't use that word about Jesus. Jesus did not become an angel. He became a reconstituted Son of God, human form, more human, more fully human than before. It's critical. Touch me, he said in John. Luke 24, see my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, Jesus said. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus had and today has flesh and bones. Think about that. A lot of us don't realize that. Jesus still today has flesh and bones. And someday, when the fullness of time has come, God will remake this world and give all who are followers of Jesus flesh and bones like Jesus' body, and He, along with us, will live on His brand-new remade earth. We go to heaven when we die, but we don't stay there forever. Someday, heaven's going to come back to earth, and we will live on this earth as remade men and women with our Saviour Jesus. That's what the Christian message is about. Many of them have tried to explain it as if it was a ghost or a vision or they're looking for him. They were not. You see, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and I am convinced that it is, it means that Christianity stands unique among all world religions. No one else has the audacity to claim that their leader was raised from the dead. And I think if you were to research this, you would find that the best historical explanation for the rise of the church after Jesus' death was their belief in the resurrection of the dead. It's hard to explain how this church got started except because of that. I believe it's one of the most fundamental claims about, uh, truth claims about the, the Christian church you see, Christianity stands unique among all world religions. It means that when Jesus rose out of the grave on Easter morning, the world turned a fundamental corner. Something new had come. New creation began when Jesus broke through death, and then those who followed him, his Spirit was put in them, and they became new creation as well, and they became living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus, and that's what we're trying to do when we gather Everything we do about this life, yes, Christians believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, Christians believe in the authority and inspiration of Scripture. Christians believe in the authority and inspiration of Scripture. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for training, for correction, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be fully complete, prepared for every good work. Christians believe that these words are living words, the Word of God, the guidebook for our lives. Christians believe that you can find truth in many places, but the only place that you can be sure you're finding it is in the scripture. Christians believe in the authority the inspiration and the authority of the Holy Scripture. A lot of people are uncomfortable with this. A lot of people think that it's an ancient book and it doesn't have a device that matters for today. We have to study it carefully, but it is the barometer for what Christians believe. That's the essence of Christianity. That's why when we come together, we read the Scripture we study the Scripture. We seek to apply the Scripture. We let our lives be shaped by the Scripture. We try to flood ourselves with the Scripture because we believe that it is God breathed. There's that word wind, God breathed. That's the inspiration. Uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And there are many ways to see this, but I, one of the things I always sort of really fascinating about the New Testament is that it, uh, when Luke is writing this story of the New Testament, he was very concerned for accuracy in in the book of Acts. And he says, I checked sources and all. And so you notice, many times people are not named, but here we see the name Rhoda. Rhoda. Now, why is Rhoda in this story? You know, how did you verify things in the first century? If you look through the New Testament, you will see that very often the way things were verified in the first century is you use the witnesses, the, the names of witnesses. Why do you think Simon of Cyrene is named as the one who carried Jesus' cross? It's like you're reading the story, and Simon, you could go check with Simon. It's like a you know, witness to the truth of it. Um, why do you think Mary Magdalene and Salome and some of these others are named? Because they were witnesses to the event. And there's an oddness in this story. You know? Why, if you were inventing a story about Peter's escape, would you have this story in it? Why? Except that it's the truth. It's just what happened. And we find this all the way through. We find this in the stories of the resurrection. They're just trying to tell the truth about what they saw. I know it sounds crazy, but this is what we saw. I know I had a hard time believing it too, but there he was right in front of me. You see, the Scripture is our ultimate source of truth, and so you want to ask yourself the question, what is my ultimate source of truth? You see, what happens for me is this. I don't start with Scripture so much as I take it as an honest recollection of what had happened. But once I experience the truth of Jesus Christ, then I find myself going to the Scriptures to learn more. And in that, I find confidence in the authority of Scripture, and so I'm willing to trust my life to the truth of this Word. The Scriptures are our source of authority. And the third thing that I can put out of this text as well is... Christians believe not just in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, not just in the authority and inspiration of Scripture, but number three, in the life-changing power of the gospel. In the life-changing power of the gospel. Christians believe in the utter transformation of uh, of people's lives. Peter is a great example of that. You'll hear Peter had been in jail And God worked a miracle in his life, but it wasn't the first time God had done this. You know how Peter was. Peter had been a brash, bold disciple, quick to promise but not quick to deliver. He had said, you can count on me, Lord, and he had failed him. And then we see that Jesus, after his resurrection in the 21st chapter of John, came to Peter, and they had a one-on-one conversation while the rest of them had breakfast on the seashore. The resurrected Jesus had made fish for everybody. And Peter and Jesus are walking, and Jesus has a very heart-to-heart conversation with Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He said the second time. Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. And the third time in John 21, Peter, do you love me? And the Bible says Peter was grieved because the Lord asked him the third time. Remember, Peter had denied him three times. Asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he said words which Peter never thought he would hear again, but he heard them years before Jesus said to him, follow me. He reinstated him, and his life was utterly transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that Peter became the rock upon which that church could be built. Peter had a transformation of his life. Because of the power of the gospel. You see, the question is Does God make a difference in people's lives? And I guess the question is Has God made a difference in your life? Have you ever surrendered your heart to this resurrected Jesus? Have you ever put yourself under the authority of His Word? Have you ever uh, opened your life to the power of His Spirit to guide and to influence you? Do you really believe in the power of God to change your life? Yes, when we gather, we don't just gather to sing, The Candyman Can, right? <laughs> Who can make the sun rise? We gather to worship. God who made this universe don't you ever forget it and trust me we forget it all the time when you come to this place when you come to his word when you make choices in your life there is a God who made this universe and loved us so much that he sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sin. He rose from the dead, and we gather to be reminded of that story, and that is an utterly transforming story, that the God of the universe loves you. If we take that seriously in our lives, people will not fit into this place because they will want to see a God who can change their life as much as He's changed ours. But it begins with a response to Him. So let's respond to Him today. Let's come to Him and bow at His feet. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, do it today. Respond in faith to Him. He is offering to you the opportunity for new life receive it. And if you have received it, please never forget what God has done for you. That's the root at which everything else can grow. Let's have prayer as we close. Dear Jesus, we're grateful and thankful that as we gather today, you are here with us. While I'm speaking today, you hear my voice not because of any goodness in me, certainly not, but because of your grace extended to us. I pray that you would help us to experience afresh and anew the life-changing power of the gospel. And if there are any among us who've just never responded in faith, may this be the moment when we say, Lord, I respond to you. And help us never to forget this great story. Help our meetings to never be shallow, feel-good experiences. We take $5 worth of God and go on a merry way. Help it to be utterly life-transforming for us. I thank you, honestly, Lord, for the way I've seen the transforming power of your word take place in individual lives around us. It's done my heart good. We hear people talk about how much the Scripture has begun to mean to them. Help us be responsive to you. Thank you for giving your life for us. In Jesus' name.